Good evening. These stories have been uh, chosen not for their literary quality only, uh, but for the wisdom that can be extracted from it if we make proper application to them, <clears throat> if we really listen to what is being said. The title of my first selection is simply Things. Mr. and Mrs. Thing are a very pleasant and successful couple. At least that's the verdict of most people who tend to measure success with a thingamometer. And when the thingamometer is put to work in the life of Mr. and Mrs. Thing, the result is startling. There he is, sitting down on a luxurious and very expensive thing, almost hidden by the large number of other things. Things to sit on, things to sit at, things to cook on, things to eat from, all shining and new. Things, things, things. Things to clean with, things to wash with, things to clean, and things to wash. Things to amuse, things to give pleasure, things to watch, and things to play. Things for the long, hot summers, things for the short, cold winters, things for the big thing in which they live, things for the garden, things for the kitchen, and things for the bedroom. Things on four wheels, things on two wheels, things to put on top of the thing with four wheels, things to pull behind the four wheels, things to add to the interior of the thing on four wheels. Well, Mr. Thing, I have some bad news for you. What's that? You can't hear me? The things are in the way? Ah, but then that's the problem with things. Look at that thing standing outside your house. Whatever its value to the second-hand thing dealer, it means a lot to you. But then, an error in judgment, a temporary loss of concentration, and that thing can be a mass of mangled metal being towed off to the junkyard. And you, Mr. Thing, could be lying in a fancy thing with lots of nice things on it and people filing by and saying nice things about you and they will ask what did he leave your widow mrs thing will sadly reply everything good evening as I prepared for presentations this evening, looking for little excerpts that would leave us with wise nuggets, I was reminded of a book my cousin gave me in 1970 called Wellsprings of Wisdom, full of little anecdotes, each of which provides a little wellspring of wisdom. And as I read through this, I recognized that these accounts I had read 30, 40 years ago, although I didn't think of reading, I didn't read them recently, the truth that they illustrate were really embedded in my subconsciousness and I had been living by them in many ways since. Illustrates the fact that we can learn things from what we read over the years, things, this is different kinds of things, uh, what we read over the years that stay with us. And so I'll share several of these short selections. First one is called Free Lunch. The friends of a noted American economist arranged the banquet to celebrate the man's many years of private and public contributions to the nation's thinking. When the festivities ended, a group of newspaper reporters asked the guest of honor if he did not have a message for the people. Perhaps some great economic truth distilled from his years of study. Well, said the economist, there are a number of economic truths pertinent to these days, but they're rather complex and difficult to express in terms most people would understand. However, they all boil down to one simple fact that history has time and again proved. There is no such thing as a free lunch. 
as illustrated today for those of us who were here. That lunch wasn't free. It cost somebody something. Somebody paid somewhere. And then this one is titled, The Magic Sticks. An oriental prince awoke one morning and discovered some of his possessions were missing. He summoned his wise men and asked them to find the thief. Most of the men did no more than suggest the obvious procedures, but the wisest of them said, I'll find the thief with my magic sticks. When one of these sticks is placed near a thief overnight, it grows two inches in length. Put your servants in separate cells tonight, and I will put a stick in each cell. In the morning, the thief will be revealed. The prince agreed. The next morning, the sticks were gathered and measured, and one stick was found to be two inches shorter than the others. What kind of nonsense is this, demanded the prince. You said one of the sticks would grow longer. Well, that's true. That's what I said. Nevertheless, it has worked as I expected. There is the thief. And he pointed to the man with the shorter stick. The accused servant promptly confessed, explaining that he knew that if any of the sticks grew longer, it would be his. The agony I went through last night was terrible, he said. I kept looking at this stick to see if it would expose me, and I thought I saw it begin to grow. I became so utterly convinced in my guilt that it was increasing in length that finally I cut off two inches so it would be the same length as the others. The wise man knew the workings of conscience. The third one is called practical sympathy. Years ago, in the English town of Rochdale, Jacob Wright, a mill owner, was walking up the hill from town one day when he encountered a poor farmer in serious trouble. The poor man's horse had broken its leg and had to be destroyed. People stood around the distraught farmer telling him how sorry they were for his great loss. As soon as Jacob Wright took in the situation, he removed his hat, placed five pounds of money in it, and said to the sympathetic bystanders, I'm sorry, five pounds for our neighbor. How sorry are you? And he handed the hat to the next person. The hat was passed, and when it came around, it had collected enough money for the man to buy another horse. I've often thought of that in years since, when there was a, a need for some kind of a collection for a loss. How sorry am I? Is this a $10 sorry, a $50 sorry, $100 sorry? Just how sorry are you? And then last of these short selections, this one's called Community. A preacher in a rural community heard that a man in his parish had announced he would no longer attend church services because he had decided he could commune with God just as easily in the fields and garden and among the trees. One autumn evening, the preacher called on his reluctant parishioner, and for a while the two men sat before the blazing fireplace saying little or nothing, and not a word about church attendance. The man waited uneasily for the preacher to broach the subject. The preacher was aware that he would be expected to rebuke the man. Finally, the preacher picked up the tongs, lifted a single glowing coal from the fire and set it down on the hearth and silently waited until the coal quickly ceased burning while the other coals in the fire continued to burn brightly. You see what happens, said the preacher. You need say no more, replied the man. Man cannot live alone. I'll be at church next Sunday. I hear and see children here. Want to dedicate this next reading song, uh, this reading to uh, to the children. 
And in a sense, uh, we are all children, aren't we? Let's listen well to the book called Sanji's Seed. Long, long ago, when all lands were ruled by kings, Sanji lived with his mother in a poor mountain town. Every week on his way to the bazaar, Sanji stopped a peek between the bars of the great iron gates that guarded the king's palace. Sanji dreamed of becoming king. One morning, the gates were standing wide open. Sanji stepped inside. In the middle of the courtyard stood a row of boys. They wore silk pants, fancy shirts, and golden sandals. A feathered hat topped each boy's head. Sanji looked down at his own bare feet and tattered clothes. I am like a weed in a rose garden, he thought. But Sanji was so curious about the king and his palace that he straightened his shoulders, he smoothed his hair, and went to stand in line with the other boys. As he did, the king's messenger opened a scroll and began to read. The wise King Akbar has grown old because he has no sons or daughters, no brothers or sisters, no nieces or nephews, nor even any aunts or uncles. He wishes to train one of you to be king. But first you must pass the king's royal test. Each one of you will be given a seed. Plant it and care for it. When the moon is full in the skies again, return to the palace with your seed. King Akbar will choose the one among you who is worthy to be king. Seven silver trumpets sounded, and King Akbar marched into the courtyard, his bright robes flowing behind him. One by one, he dropped a seed into each boy's hand. When he came to Sanji, he stopped. With serious eyes, the king studied Sanji from the top of his head down to his dirty feet. Sanji held out his trembling hand. Without a word, King Akbar dropped a tiny black seed into Sanji's palm. Sanji ran all the way home, squeezing the seed. Mother, mother, he cried, bursting into their stone hut. The king has grown old. He has no sons or daughters, no brothers or sisters, no nieces or nephews, nor even any aunts or uncles, so he might choose me to become king. Look! And Sanji uncurled his fingers, and there in his sweaty palm lay the tiny black seed. A seed? What good is one seed, my son? Mother, think of it. This tiny seed is my chance to be crowned king. If I grow the biggest plant with the sweetest flowers, I will take you to live at the palace. So Sanji planted the seed, the delicate seed, in a cracked clay cup. Every morning he watered it and set it in the window to be warmed by the sun. And every night he dreamed of becoming king. When the moon was half empty, Sanji said, 21 more days and I must, before I must return to the palace with my seed. Maybe today my seed will grow. That night, after gathering cow dung for fire, Sanji ran to see if the seed had sprouted. But it had not. When the moon was nowhere to be seen in the skies, Sanji said, 14 more days until I must return to the palace with my seed. Today is the day my seed will grow. That night, when he had finished weeding his mother's garden, Sanji ran to see if the seed had sprouted, but it had not. Days passed. When the moon was half full again, Sanji said, Only seven more days before I must return to the palace with my seed. Today must be the day that my seed will grow. And that night, after he hurried home with water from the well, Sanji ran to see if the seed had sprouted, but it had not. Mother, he said, what if the king becomes angry or laughs at me? Each night the moon rises bigger and brighter, and soon I must return to the palace with my seed, but it refuses to grow. Rest, my Sanji, his mother answered. You have done all that you can, but there must be more that I can do. So Sanji sang to his seed. That night, after picking apricots, Sanjay ran to see if the seed had sprouted, but it had not. The next morning, Sanji set the clay cup on a tree stump. Slowly, humming with the birds and swaying with the breeze, Sanji danced for his seed. 
That night after washing clothes in the river, Sanjay ran to see if the seed had sprouted, but it had not. As soon as the first light of the, sky, of the sun touched the skies, Sanji carried his seed into the woods. Tiny black seed, he said, shaking his finger at the cup of dirt. You are being stubborn. I watered you and I gave you light. I sang for you. I danced for you. I prayed for you. You must grow now so that I can become king. That night before Sanji finished milking his goat, he ran to see if the seed had sprouted. But still, it had not. Mother, he cried, this is worse than falling into a pit of snakes. The whole kingdom's going to laugh at me. Tonight, the moon will rise as a great pearl in the skies, and tomorrow I must return to the palace. I can't go before the king with a cup of dirt. Rest, my son, his mother answered. Even if the whole world laughs, I'm very proud of you. You have done your best. Perhaps you were not meant to be king. That night, Sanji tossed and turned in his bed. The silver light of a full moon shone in his face. Why did I ever dream of becoming king? He sighed. The next morning, Sanji did not hurry to the king's palace. By the time he arrived at the great iron gates, the other boys had already all lined up in the courtyard. They held large pots with shiny plants and sweet flowers. And soon, word spread down the road that Sanji had no plant. Fool, whispered one boy. You don't belong here, scoffed another. And they all began to laugh. And Sanji hung his head in shame. The king's messenger stepped forward. Let the royal test begin. One by one, King Akbar picked up every pot. He sniffed each flower. He spoke with every boy. When the king came to Sanji, he did not pick up the empty pot, the empty cup. He turned and walked to the middle of the courtyard. Young men of my kingdom, said King Akbar, you have strong, healthy plants. And then he began to laugh. He laughed until he held his sides and was wiping tears from his eyes. But your plants are not from the seeds that I gave you. I boiled my seeds in oil, and I dried them in the sun. There was no life in them. Those seeds could never grow. King Akbar's solemn gaze met Sanji's. Step forward, he commanded. Your cup of dirt tells me that you're the only one brave enough to do what is right before God, no matter what the cost. I will train you to be the next king. Sanji's heart soared. Servants bowed before him. They draped bright robes over his shoulders. And that same day, he brought his mother to live with him at the palace. And from that time on, Sanji looked out from the royal side of the great iron gates where all the days of his life he was known as a kind and honest king. The theme of the, uh, of the book, the foreword in the book, says uh, it gives the idea, the verse, based on the verse, uh, whoever can be trusted with small things can also be trusted with large things. That idea. And that's one of the pieces of wisdom that's easy to extract when you think about all these things. But uh, there's a lot more in this. And you may want to discuss it with your children uh, to, to what all can be gained and gleaned from it. I will try to put the book on the table in the back, too, at, at dismissal uh, so that children can look at the pictures in the book as well. I've often been encouraged and inspired by the biography of George Washington Carver, a man, a devout man who did much for the South. I'm going to read some excerpts from two selections about him, one from a biography and another about his testifying before the Senate. Breaking in here, in native plants, mineral wealth and manpower, which form the basis of national wealth, the southeastern section of the U.S. was better favored than almost any other part of the globe, yet it remained among the poorest. Race and class fears in this land of neglected opportunity made the communities sterile. 
Professor Carver did not think merely in terms of helping to lift his people, but all people who were in need. The Negro and the South were interdependent. If the South could be rehabilitated, the general scale would rise. One important way was to build up native industries. Even though the South would probably remain largely agricultural, a really prosperous agriculture needed many new industries for processing products, supplying its equipment, and balancing its economy. Professor Carver retired to God's little workshop to wrestle with the immediate question. In his solitary moments, he meditated long over the implications of the boll weevil and decided that God had sent it in order to develop a new south, a south of factories as well as farms. Professor Carver did not say, I am going to do so and so, but looked for divine direction. And he believed devoutly that a plan was inherent in everything if one could just be patient and wait for it to show itself. According to his notion, at the back of all manifestations, and that did not exclude the scientific, was one cause, one creator. The seeker after truth did little but draw aside the veil and think God's thoughts after him. I discover nothing in my laboratory, Professor Carver said. If I come here of myself, I am lost. But I can do all things through Christ. I am God's servant, his agent, for here God and I are alone. I am just the instrument through which he speaks, and I would be able to do more if I were to stay in closer touch with him. With my prayers, I mix my labors, and sometimes God is pleased to bless the results. When he was about to make an experiment, he was up at three in the morning, the door locked, ready for the attempt to put what God had made for man's use and his delight to its practical application. He devoutly believed that a personal relationship with the creator of all things was the only foundation for the abundant life. He had a little story in which he related his experience. I asked the great creator what the universe was made for. Ask for something more in keeping with that little mind of yours, he replied. What was man made for? Little man, you still want to know too much. Cut down the extent of your request and improve the intent. Then I told the creator I wanted to know all about the peanut. He replied that my mind was too small to know all about the peanut, but he said he would give me a handful of peanuts. I carried the peanuts into my laboratory, and the creator told me to take them apart and resolve them into their elements. With such knowledge as I had of chemistry and physics, I set to work to take them apart. I separated the water, the fats, the oils, the gums, the resins, the sugars, the starches, the pectoses, pentosons, amino acids. There, I had the parts of the peanuts all spread out before me. And, and as a result, he developed over, I believe it was 800 uses of the peanut. And the time came when there was some, there's a congressional hearing in Washington, D.C., of which crops to put on to uh, impose a tariff on so that foreign crops would not compete with American-produced crops. And the peanut growers thought that the peanuts should be included in the list. The con congressman thought this was kind of a joke because who knew anything about peanuts? And so Professor Carver was uh, summoned to Washington to testify before a, a committee. So now we're at the Washington, D.C., and he's speaking before the a congressional committee. According to the committee rules, Mr. Carver, you have 10 minutes to speak. Begin. Carver smiled with a confidence few of that time could understand. Cotton was king in the South. Peanuts were at best a sideshow, an amusement for the circus or the county fair. Gentlemen, he began in his high-pitched voice, quiet voice, I am especially interested in Southern crops and their potential for our regional and national economy. In my 25 years of research at Tuskegee Institute, I have found the peanut to be the most amazing, versatile, and promising of all crops. Senators arched their eyebrows in disbelief, but George Washington Carver had 25 years of careful science to back him up. Like a skilled magician, he began to pull 
jars, bottles, bags, and vials from his bulging cardboard suitcase. Gentlemen, I apologize for not bringing all that peanuts offer, but I have identified over 300 valuable products that can be made from the simple peanut. This is only a small sample. One jar held facial cream made with a peanut oil base. A bag held peanut-based cattle feed. There was peanut breakfast cereal and peanut coffee. A bottle was, milk with, was filled with milk made from peanuts. This peanut milk, gentlemen, has been found fed to starving children in regions of Africa where animals are scarce and where peanuts are much easier to grow than cows. It has saved thousands of lives in one region alone. Other jars held dyes, butter, soap, wood stain, and meat sauce. Bottles were filled with oils, ink, and shaving cream. On the table was a stack of paper made from peanut shells. Carver picked up a strip of peanut-based plastic and tossed it to one senator. To another, he tossed a synthetic rubber made from peanuts. The great magician Houdini himself could not have dreamed of a more amazed reaction from his audience. All along the table, senatorial mouths dropped open, hands thoughtfully stroked chins, pencil scribbled notes and hurried instructions were whispered to staff members. Newspaper reporters who had watched all three days long of the hearing said that the peanut man was the only witness to get a reaction out of the committee to really get their attention. All along the committee hands began to rise. Mr. Carver, are you telling us this amazing variety of things all come from peanuts? Mr. Carver, if peanuts will do this, why haven't we been produ producing them all along? Mr. Carver, I don't think you told us what the brown stuff is in that large jar to your left. Um, Carver smiled. My mistake, Senator, that one is called peanut butter. Chairman Forney tapped his gavel and recommended they extend the peanut man's 10 minutes to 30 minutes, and the whole committee nodded agreement. To all appearances, George Washington Carver was calm as he answered questions and smiled. There stood George Washington Carver, facing 15 excited U.S. Senators. Peanuts, gentlemen. My research shows it is a crop that America needs. When the Tariff Protection Bill of 1921 reached the Senate floor two weeks later, peanuts were prominently included, while many better-known crops were not. It was a shining moment of triumph for the scientific process and for the steadfast determination of one lone scientist working in a rundown barn with little equipment and less funding, but with a vision of how science could serve his community. My next selection is titled Dear Miss O'Neill by uh, Leo Rostin. Leo Rostin is an author of a number of books, uh, at least was an author of a number of books, and uh, a uh, an attempt was made to contact uh, some of these prolific writers and ask them to write about their most influential teacher. This story is given in, in a nod to the teachers here tonight. Um, and I would, I would say that, yes, we do need to love and affirm and appreciate our students. We need to build relationships with them. However, you will recognize by reading about uh, Dear Miss O'Neill that uh, that is not the emphasis of her teaching. But it does give us a lot to think about, and uh, there's some wisdom that we can extract from this, I think. Dear Miss O'Neill, on the hot days, and the only city hotter than Chicago where this happened is Bombay, Miss O'Neill would lift her wig and gently scratch her pate. She did it absently without interrupting whatever she was saying or doing. We always watched with fascination. Miss O'Neill was our seventh grade teacher, and it was a consensus of my more sophisticated peers that Miss O'Neill had, until very recently, been a nun. This was the only, th only way that they could explain the phenomenon of her baldness. Miss O'Neill, they whispered, had left her holy order for a heart for heart-rending reasons, and the punishment her superiors had decreed was that she become a slave in the George Howland School on 16th Street. Miss O'Neill was a dumpy, moon-faced, sallow-skinned, colorless 
was dumpy, moon-faced, sallow, sallow skin, and colorless, and we loathed her as a pack of West Side barbarians could loathe a teacher of arithmetic. She didn't teach arithmetic, but that's how much we all hated her. She was our English teacher, a 33rd degree perfectionist who drilled us endlessly and mercilessly in spelling and grammar and diction and syntax. She had a hawk's eye for a dangling participle or an upright non sequitur, a not quite right word or a fruity solecism. Whenever any of us made an error in composition or recitation, Miss O'Neill would send the culprit to the blackboard to diagram the sentence. That was the torture we most resented. We had to designate the function of every word and phrase and clause. We had to describe how each part of every sentence worked. We had to explain how the parts fit together and how they meshed and moved to wheel out meaning before our whole runny-nosed congregation, an innocent child had himself or herself to locate an error, identify a malfunction, explain the reason for the correction, while Miss O'Neill impassively waited. She waited as if she could sit there until Gabriel blew his gazoo, as our devastating humor had it. And if the offered correction was itself wrong, Miss O'Neill would compound the discipline by making the errant urchin diagram that on the di on this board, instructing him to persevere. Some students would break into a sweat as they floundered around, failing to hit the bullseye, praying that Miss O'Neill would end their agony by the generous gift of one good and true answer. But that Miss O'Neill rarely proffered. Instead, she would turn her inquisition from the pupil at the blackboard to the helots in the chairs. Well, class, Jacob, do you know the answer? No. Shirley? Harold? Joseph? So heartless and unyielding was her method. Each day as we poured out of George Howland like Cheyennes en route to a scalping, we would pause briefly to pool our misery and voice our rage over the fate that had condemned us as such an ABC Darian. Miss O'Neill never raised her voice, never lost her patience, never got angry. What was more surprising, she never had to punish or even threaten our most ingenious troublemakers. For some reason we never discovered the small impertinences and sly infractions and simulated incomprehensions with which we shrewdly persecuted our other teachers never seemed to get anywhere in the tight, ship-shaped world of Miss O'Neill's classroom. I say that my comrades and I hated Miss O'Neill but that's not entirely true. I only pretended to hate her. In our sidewalk conclaves, I too would howl about Miss O'Neill's tyranny, cursing her adamantine ways as fervently as any of my companions. So strong is the desire of a boy to belong, to be no different from even the grubbiest of his fellows. But secretly, my respect for Miss O'Neill, uh, nay, my affection, Increased week by week, for I was exhilarated by what I can only call the incorruptibility of her instruction. I found, myself, I found stirring within myself a sense of excitement, of discovery, a curious quickening of the spirit that attends initiation into a new world. Though I could not explain it in these words, I felt that Miss O'Neill was leading me not through the irksome labyrinth of English, but into a sunlit realm of order and meaning. Her iron rules, her crisp structures, her constant corrections were not to me the irritating nitpicking that they were to my buddies. They were sudden flashes of light, glimpses of magic hidden within words, intoxicating visions of that universe that awaits understanding. It was as if a cloak of wonder had been wrapped around the barren bones of grammar. For it was not grammar or diction or syntax that Miss O'Neill, whether she knew it or not, was introducing me to. She was revealing language as the beautiful beat and life of logic. The most astonishing thing about Miss O'Neill was that she proceeded on the sanguine assumption that she could actually teach a pack of potential roller skate derby fans how to write clear, clean, crisp, 
correct sentences organized in clear, clean, correct paragraphs in their native tongue. She was a technician, pure and simple, efficient, conscientious, immune to the malarkey that some pupils resorted to. Nothing derailed Miss O'Neill. And that is the point. Miss O'Neill did not try to please us. She did not even try to like us. She certainly made no effort for us to like her. She valued results more than affection and respect more than popularity. I think Miss O'Neill knew what the evangelists of progressive education are bound to rediscover, that the young prefer competence to personality in a teacher, and certainly to camaraderie, and that a teacher needs neither be an ogre nor a confidant, that what is hard to master gives children special rewards precisely because difficulties have been conquered that there may indeed be no easy road to learning some things and no fascinating or fun way of learning some things really well. <clears throat> I do not know whether Miss O'Neill infected anyone else in my seventh grade with a passion for or even an abiding interest in English, but to me she was a force of enlightenment. She has long since shucked her travail among the West Side Aborigines Perhaps she has departed this baffling world to don wings, and I hope golden locks, to replace that wig under whose gauzy base she scratched relief from itching. If she is still alive, she must be in her dotage, and if she is among us still, I hope she somehow gets word of these long belated thanks for a job supremely well done. I have never forgotten what she taught. To this day, whether I am wrestling and intransigent sentence or stand glazed before a buck-passing phrase whose improvement eludes me or flagellate myself for some inspiration that might light up the drab texture of a tired prose. I find myself thinking of Miss what, oh what, O'Neill. And sighing, I take a sheet of paper and diagram the English until I know and know why it is right or wrong and how it can be swept clean of that muddle-headedness that plagues us all. To revisit with you tonight that classic poem by John Sachs, The Blind Men and the Elephant. It was six men of understand to learning much inclined who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant and happening to fall against his broad and sturdy side at once began to call. I see, said he, the elephant is very like a wall. The second feeling of the tusk cried, Ho, oh, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp. To me, tis very clear this wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal and happening to take the squirming trunk within his hands, thus boldly up he spake. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. The forest reached out his eager hand and felt about the knee. What most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, quoth he. Tis clear enough the elephant is very like a tree. The fifth who chanced to touch the ear said, E'en the blindest man can tell what this resembles most. Deny the fact who can. This marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth no sooner had begun to about the beast to grope than, seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope, I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a rope. And so these men of Indistan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right and all were in the wrong. The longer I live, the more I experience, the more applications I see for this uh, poem. It's one that I refer to 
in teaching child development, when you think about teaching, there are many things to look at at teaching. Teaching is a process of memorizing. No, 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 no. Teaching is a process of understanding concepts. No, no, no. Teaching is a, you have to learn how to do things. If you can't do it, you don't know it. No, 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 no. You've got to ask questions. That's where it's at. You've got to stimulate questions. Students have to do their own thinking. Uh, yeah, no, but the students have to learn from people who have experience. They can't, so, and so you go on and on, each partly in the right. And that's only in the field of teaching. So you take, you pick your field, whatever your field of endeavor is, uh, cooking, baking, keeping house, raising children. As we look at that, this person looks at it from one perspective, the next person from another perspective, and you say, no, no, this is the way to do it. No, no, it's that. And each is partly in the right and partly in the wrong. Uh, profound truth, the applications of this uh, are unending. My last selection is a, also a poem. I considered my grandfather to be a wise man. I learned a lot from him. I still think of him often when I think of wisdom in a gray head and, and wisdom that comes from uh, older people. I think of my grandfather often. He had a real burden and a concern for his descendants and for his uh, children and grandchildren. He had a heart of concern about them. Uh, my cousin Carolyn might remember how he asked his children if they would memorize a certain poem. Okay, and you recall our aunts and uncles, even years later, piecing together the poem the best they could. And I think he offered them $50, didn't he? He offered them a substantial sum of money, and this was back in the 50s and 60s, possibly as late as the 70s, if they could memorize this poem from beginning to end and recite it in one setting. I don't know if any of my aunts or uncles received that prize money or not, but I uh, recall with fondness how my grandfather felt about this subject. The Church Walking with the World. It's written by Matilda Edwards and published in 1936 in the book called Best Loved Poems of the American People. The church and the world walked far apart on the changing shores of time. The world was singing a giddy song and the church a hymn sublime. Come, give me your hand, said the merry world, and walk with me this way. But the faithful church hid her gentle hands and solemnly answered, Nay. I will not give you my hand at all, and I will not walk with you. Your way is the way that leads to death. Your words are all untrue. Nay, walk with me a little space, said the world with a kindly air. The road I walk is a pleasant road, and the sun shines always there. Your path is thorny and rough and rude, but mine is broad and plain. My way is paved with flowers and dews, and yours with tears and pain. The sky to me is always blue, no want nor toil, I know. The sky above you is always dark. Your lot is a lot of woe. There's room enough for you and me to travel side by side. Half shyly, the church approached the world and gave him her hand of snow. And the old world grasped it and walked along, saying in accents low, Your dress is too simple. To please my taste, I will give you pearls to wear. Rich velvets and silks for your graceful form and diamonds to deck your hair. The church looked down at her plain white robes and then at the dazzling world and blushed as she saw his handsome lip with a smile contemptuously curled. I will change my dress for a costlier one, said the church with a smile of grace. Then her pure white garments drifted away. And the world gave in their place beautiful satins and shining silks, roses and gems and costly pearls, while over her forehead her bright hair fell, captured in a thousand curls. Your house is too plain, said the 
proud old world, and I'll build you one like mine, with walls of marble and towers of gold and furniture ever so fine. So he built her a costly and beautiful house, most splendid it was to behold. Her sons and her beautiful daughters dwelt there, glimmering in purple and gold. Rich fit, <clears throat> excuse me. Rich fairs and shows in the halls were held, and the world and the children were there. Laughter and music and feasts were heard in the place that was meant for prayer. There were cushioned seats for the rich and the gay to sit in their pomp and pride, but the poor who were clad in shabby array sat meekly down outside. You give too much to the poor, said the world, far more than you ought to do. <coughs> Excuse me. If they are in need of shelter and food, why need it trouble you? Go, take your money and buy rich robes, buy horses and carriages fine, buy pearls and jewels and dainty food, buy the rarest of costliest wine. My children, they dote on all these things, and if you their love would win, you must do as they do and walk in their ways that they are walking in. So the poor were turned from her door in scorn, and she heard not the orphans cry, but she drew her beautiful robes aside as the widows went weeping by. Then the sons of the world and the sons of the church walk closely hand and heart, and only the master who knoweth all could tell the two apart. Then the church sat down in her ease and said, I am rich and my goods increase. I have need of nothing or aught to do but to laugh and dance and feast. The sly world heard, and he laughed in his sleeve, and mockingly said aside, The church is fallen, the beautiful church, and her shame is her boast and her pride. The angel drew near to the mercy seat and whispered in sighs her name. Then the loud anthems of rapture were hushed, and heads were covered with shame. And a voice at last was heard by the church, from him who sat on the throne, I know thy works, and how thou hast said, I am rich, and hast not known that thou art naked, poor, and blind, and wretched before my face. Therefore, from my presence cast I thee out, and blot thy name from its place. Men will not even hear the names of the great mass of the people who are living their life throughout the world today. I want to know what there is in the life of Jesus that helps such persons. We are accustomed to think of him as one in a public ministry, as the man of the marketplace and the crowd, the teacher who spake as never man spake, the healer whose touch brought life and blessing to hundreds the man who rebuked sin in high places and spoke words of infinitely sweet pity and kindness to the child and the young disciple. But the greater part of his life was not lived in those places where we have grown most familiar with him, but rather in quiet seclusion where the great crowd of men and women will always live in this world. Let us then try and see him in those 18 hidden years. Two verses are the only two that give us any definite or detailed account of what Jesus was doing from the time he was 12 until he was about 30. Take to these two statements and fix them on your minds for a moment. Is not this the carpenter? <coughs> and this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. For the greater part of Jesus' life, he worked with his own hands for his own living. That brings the Son of God in living, pulsating life close to every man who works. Press, I press this upon you above everything else, that he worked for his living. Oh, that we could get all the strength and comfort which this fact is calculated to afford. Businessmen, 
You who have been at work all week and have been harassed by daily labors and are weary and tired and seeking for new inspiration, this Jesus, whose name has become a name of sweetness and love, was not a king upon a throne. He was not, for the greater part of his life, a teacher with the thrill and excitement of public life to buoy him up. No, the long years ran on, and he was doing what some of you speak of as the daily round, the common task. The man Jesus arose at daybreak, and picking up his tools, he made yokes and tables in order that he might have something to eat. And that, not for a brief period, but for 18 years. He was an apprentice boy, a young man improving his craft, a master in his little shop with the shavings around him and the tools about him. When Jesus was sent out from that carpenter's shop, yokes that the farmers would use, they were so fashioned and finished that they would, gall, that they would not gall any ox. Take my yoke upon you gathers force and strength as an illustration from the fidelity of the carpenter's shop. When Jesus said, take my yoke, it was because he knew that it would not gall, it would be finished and perfect. Sometimes we have overshadowed the carpenter's shop with Calvary's cross. We have no right to do it. We have come to forget the fidelity of the Son of God in the little details of life as we have gazed upon his magnificent triumphs in the places of passion and conflict. No life ever touched the life of the Son of God, but was brighter and purer and stronger for the contact. And so, when the years of the carpenter's shop are over, God sets his seal of approval upon them, first, because the work has been well done, and secondly, because the influence of the life has been true and right and noble. The carpenter's shop was the will of God for him, and therefore he abode in that shop and did the work incidental to us. Jesus taught us that all work, that all toil is holy, if the toiler be holy. No man is fit for the great places of service who has not fitted himself by fidelity in obscurity. The carpenter's shop made Calvary not a battlefield merely, but a day of triumph that lit heaven and earth with hope. And if you and I would triumph when our Calvary comes, we must triumph in the little things of the common hours. And I'll remind us again what he said that when Jesus left the carpenter's shop and went and was baptized by John, before he had begun the first step of his public ministry, the testimony was, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Speaking of the work that he had already done in those 18 years. A wonderful meditation that calls us to remember the importance of the daily grind, the daily life that most of us are called to and that Jesus spent most of his life doing.